Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explores the history behind the headlines. I'm Ed Ayers. And I'm Joanne Freeman. If you're new to the podcast, each week, along with our colleagues Brian Ballow and Nathan Connolly, we explore a different aspect of American history. Now, we're going to start the show with something very tiny. In one of these, she called them the nutshell studies of unexplained death. And in one of the nutshells, there's a, there's a woman who is drowned in a bathtub in a poor boarding house room. This is author and journalist Rachel Monroe. You know, you might assume, looking at it on the surface, oh, this woman, maybe she, um, it was a drug overdose and she drowns in the bathtub. But if you look at it more closely, there are, there are clues that could lead you to believe that actually this looked like an overdose, but was actually a murder. The nutshell studies of unexplained death were miniature models made in the 1940s by a fascinating little-known woman named Frances Glessner Lee. The idea was to train police officers to not, not make assumptions and to, and to look for those details that would reveal what had actually happened. Lee had been interested in the work of miniatures for some time. But it took a while for her to blend this hobby with her interest in murder. She's a really a fascinating and a difficult woman. She grew up, uh, she was born in the, the tail end of the 19th century, and she grew up in a very wealthy family in Chicago. She was expected to be a society woman, so she got married about when she was, I believe she was 20, and was expected to just be a wife and a mother and, you know, maybe find a charitable cause that she would give benefits for, but to mostly lead a domestic life. And, and she did that for a long time. But in midlife, um, when she came into the bulk of her inheritance, she found a field that became pretty much the passion that defined the rest of her life, which was what was then known as legal medicine. It's, it's close to what we would now call forensic science, basically the scientific investigation of crimes or the use of scientific methods to, to investigate crimes. So basically, as you just suggested, she's she's freed because she comes into her inheritance, with, which gives her the freedom to investigate and, and find something that interests her. But the, the question, the obvious question to ask here is, how did she find her way to murder? And I guess, as you said, what we would now call forensic science. How, how did she come across that? Well, it's interesting to think about because she, you know, if she had had her way, she probably would have gone to school for nursing. She, her family considered that inappropriate for a woman to get an education in that way. And so instead she, but she did have this preoccupation with the body, with science, with how the body worked or, or failed to work. And so I think that was part of her fascination. She also became friends. She was family friends with this uh, really colorful character named George McGrath, who was the medical examiner for Boston at the time. And he was this very flashy guy. And she, Frances Glessner Lee and McGrath just really hit it off. And he would tell her all these wild stories about autopsies he'd done, cases he'd investigate. And she would just listen raptly and find it incredibly fascinating. <laughs> now, I would assume, so I would assume that this world or this realm and this field is is probably pretty male at this point. So is it is this particular person, did he smooth her transition or her, her comfort in easing her way into that kind of world? Yeah, very much so. Because this was, um, at the time, a really a new and emerging field, the, the idea that you would use science and medicine to investigate suspicious deaths. Most counties in the United States were, if somebody died, the person who would investigate the death would be a coroner, and coroners often had no medical training at all. It was an elected position. It might just be, you know, the local somebody, like the local mailman or something. Um, and so the idea that you needed to investigate deaths scientifically was really, was new. So it was this emerging field, and McGrath was really key. The other big help, of course, was her money. And 
she um, put it to good use. She ended up founding, donating the money that would establish a department of legal medicine at Harvard, which was the first department of legal medicine in the United States. And I, I, she ran into some difficulties there because I think she had a different idea of maybe what her role would be than the, than the university did. She really wanted to be hands-on. She gave them these like very elaborate lists of experiments she wanted them to do. She had a lot of suggestions of programs for study. She wanted to host events and invite people to lectures the university clearly had kind of hoped she was a nice old lady who was just going to give them money and get out of the way. And that was really very much not her personality. Now, let me ask, I know at some point she becomes interested in miniatures. So maybe first describe what miniatures means. I mean, I gather it was a real fad. Yeah, you have um, just some really gorgeous examples in the early early 20th century of um, dollhouses, I guess, is what they would be called often, um, it's it's hard not to call them doll houses because they're little small houses often with dolls in them. But um, <laughs> Francis Glessnerly found that a, an insulting and diminishing term. So I try to avoid using it. But um, it's just these small models of domestic scenes. And so a lot of the ones that were made in the early 20th century are more traditional than the ones that Francis Glessnerly ended up making. So you had um, wealthy women making these gorgeous, elaborate palaces, kind of fairy palaces um, with hundreds of rooms. And and they could get really elaborate, you know, with like real running, hot and cold running water, some of them had, or like tiny elevators. But Frances Glessnerly took it in a different direction. She did make these very beautiful, precise miniature rooms. She had a carpenter who worked with her full time on them. And they have all the little details, you know, like the tiny cans of soup and tiny mousetraps. But every single one has within it a dead doll. The idea was that she wanted to use these models to train police officers in how to scientifically investigate a crime scene. So each of the dolls was dead either through... Uh, murder, accident, or suicide, or natural causes. And there were clues, tiny little clues embedded in each of the models that could help you if you studied it properly with the correct attention, you could figure out what happened. But often it wasn't necessary, the scene wasn't necessarily what it appeared on first glance. So she was very concerned that police officers without this training in scientific investigation would just look at a scene and go based on their intuition, which of course would involve their their biases, their stereotypes. So Rachel, I gather that you have some letters dating back to January of 1944 when Lee was first coming up with the idea for her models. Could you read some of that for us? Yeah, so she at this point she's collaborating with and and corresponding with the head of the legal medicine department at Harvard. I'm uh, just trying to get some some thoughts from him about how some potential cases that she might make models from. So this is from her letter. You will note from the above that I have in prospect or completed two hangings, two shootings, two assault with blunt weapon, one natural cause, one drowning, one found dead, one arson. I do not know yet how that gentleman was killed. I'm open to suggestions and one poison. I need more traffic accidents, also another shooting or two, a stabbing, more poisonings, carbon monoxide, and a couple puzzling found deads. Would a couple of drownings be possible, or are drowned bodies too damaged and disfigured for representation? Rachel says these letters are indicative of the excitement and enthusiasm Lee had for a subject matter that's so, well, morbid. Today, the nutshells belong to the Maryland Medical Examiner, but Rachel found a way to see them in person. You know, I love small things, and I kind of also love macabre things, so I was like, I have to see these. They sound incredible. And they really are. They're so strange because they are at once totally cute and totally sinister. You can see the the really precise care that she has put into them, um, 
there are things like there'll be a little wall calendar, like a tiny little wall calendar on the wall. And every month, every month is in there, like every day, every month, the tiny little mousetrap like actually works. It'll snap closed. But then the, and the dolls that are in them that are dead, I mean, it's some, some of them are quite gruesome. Like the, the, she painted their faces, some of them, the, the like discoloration that would indicate how long they'd been dead for. Sometimes there are, you know, wounds, they're just really fascinating. And the other thing that's fascinating about them is that each of them is this, this kind of puzzle of what really happened, but the solutions are not public. There are a few of them who, uh, the, the kind of answer of like what really happened, three or four of them have, have been made public, but they're still actually in use. Um, there are still seminars that happen every year where, where police officers come and, and use them as a training tool. So this, the secret can't get out. So you act, so it's it's actually in some ways a really frustrating experience because you look at them and you're looking at this scene and you're there's one that's the largest one is a called a three room dwelling and it's a cute little suburban house, charming little kitchen, but there's three dead dolls in it a mom a, ba- a mom a father and a baby and they're all really bloody. And you look at it and you're trying to figure out you know was this a murder suicide was there and uh, did somebody break in? And you really want that closure, I think, that you're used to finding at the end of murder mystery books or murder mystery TV shows. And it's not like you don't know. It's not there. So it is, which I think in some ways prolongs the fascination. Thanks to her models, Frances Klesner Lee is often referred to as the mother of forensic science. So I guess you could say her obsession with true crime really paid off. For the rest of us, a fascination with murder might just lead to extra hours on the couch, binging Netflix shows like Tiger King or podcasts like Serial. Today, true crime has become synonymous with these new forms of media. But over the decades, Americans have found fascination repulsion, and sometimes even comfort in true crime stories. So on this episode of Backstory, we're dipping into the history of true crime in modern American history. You'll hear from Phoebe Judge about what it's like behind the scenes of one of the most successful true crime podcasts, Criminal. We'll return to my conversation with Rachel Monroe to learn about how true crime obscures the true nature of crime. And you'll hear how Truman Capote's In Cold Blood captured a pivotal moment in the history of criminology and the development of prisoners' rights. But first up, we thought we'd start back in 1892 with one of the most notorious whodunits in American history. It was sort of the O.J. Simpson trial of its day in terms of the intensity of the press coverage. Newspapers from around the country sent special correspondents to cover it, in addition to having the local papers and the wire services. This is author and lawyer Kara Robertson. Many people traveled to New Bedford, which is the site of the trial, uh, in order to witness the, the proceedings in person, and police had to set up special barricades. People, it was said, you know, like to make a kind of a picnic day event out of it. The person on trial was a 32-year-old woman named Lizzie Borden. And the crime? Double homicide. Well, we know that uh, in the mid-morning of August 4th, 1892, which was a Thursday, uh, that the prosperous mill town of Fall River, Massachusetts, was the site of a grisly double murder. Andrew Borden, a prominent local businessman, and his second wife, Abby, were found hacked to death in their home near the city center. The murders were so violent that some speculated that Jack the Ripper had come to America. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it was gruesome. Abby had been felled by 19 blows in an upstairs guest room, and 
About an hour and a half later, Andrew received 10 blows as he lay sleeping on the sitting room sofa. Well, first of all, you know, given the given the crime scene, people assume that it was going to turn out to have been the the work of some murderous stranger who was obviously insane. There were two things that seemed to rule that out. The first was that the house was pretty well locked up, uh, except for a side door that had been in uh, in view of either the housekeeper or a neighbor for much of the morning. Um, and the second major issue with that theory was the, the interval between the murders. The prosecution eventually called that the controlling issue of the case. So that would have meant that whoever killed Abby would have had to hide in the house for an hour and a half until Andrew came home to commit the second murder. So as a result, the police turned their attention to people inside the home. And there were only three possible suspects. The housekeeper, Bridget Sullivan who had been seen washing windows outside at the time of Abby's murder. Andrew Borden's brother-in-law, who was uh, visiting overnight, but who was going to visit other relatives in the morning, so was absent from the house. And finally, Andrew's younger daughter, Lizzie. Lizzie Borden wasn't someone who fit the profile of a suspected murderess. She she seemed to tick all the boxes of uh, upper middle class respectability. But it was discovered that the uh, house was the site of what some people thought of as almost a cold war, that there was ill feeling between Andrew Borden's uh, adult daughters and his second wife. Um, it was also discovered that someone who was identified as Lizzie Borden, tried to buy prussic acid on the day before the murders. Poison rather than, you know, a hatchet fit the profile of a murderess. So Lizzie is arrested and then her trial begins the following June, 1893, what was the prosecution's case against her? How did they deal with all of these sort of obvious yes and no components to the murder? The prosecution argued that she was the only person with uh, motive and opportunity to commit the murders. That there, there's really, based on the timetable, that, that there's no one else who could have done it. Uh, the prosecution pointed to the tension in the household uh, as a motive. It was hard for people to accept that that would be enough particularly that kind of murder. Uh, and it should be noted that Lizzie Borden had no blood or any other kind of sign of disturbance on her when uh, she reported the murder of her father. Hmm. So the prosecution goes, in a sense, for the obvious argument that she makes sense as the person who did the murder. What does the defense say? The defense uh, essentially points to Lizzie Borden and says, you know, someone like this couldn't possibly have done it. They do a good job of casting doubt on the question of exclusive opportunity by pointing to strangers who might have been seen in the vicinity. Uh, and they point out that you can't see everyone at any time. So, I mean, it was at least theoretically possible that someone had been in the house. Uh, at the same time, their most potent piece of evidence was the image of Lizzie Borden herself. Mm. Was that she seemed genteel and middle class or even upper middle class and that she just didn't seem like the sort of person who could have done that. Yeah, she has this extraordinary self-possession. That's the that's the thing about her that everyone notes. And that's read, you know, in contradictory ways so that uh, the defense points to it, as do Lizzie Borden's many supporters, as a sign of, you know, inborn gentility, that this is this is really a sign of true American grit. Hmm. Uh, and that she's bearing up in a ladylike fashion under the strain of unjust suspicion. For those people who thought she was the killer, they saw it quite differently. You know, they saw they saw it as a sign of almost a masculine nerve. Hmm. The uh, Irish Catholic paper calls her the Sphinx of Coolness. Uh, and that same paper, the Irish Catholic um, Fall River Daily Globe, says that uh, if, you know, a mill hand had been suspected or a domestic servant had been suspected, then 
that person would have been arrested without ceremony. And instead the police were, you know, pussyfooting around. Mm. And on the other side of the ledger, uh, the police and the prosecution received a lot of um, um, helpful suggestions about how it must have been this immigrant or that immigrant, or maybe it was some plot by the Pope. Okay, so this is an age when sensationalist news and, and mass-marketed newspapers and magazines are really booming. So how did the press in that sort of new dramatic form maybe shape how people were responding to the trial? Yeah, it's a it's a case that, you know, obviously dovetails well with the heyday of yellow journalism because there's so many horrifying, sensational details. The exhibits, you know, which are quite gruesome, including the skulls of the victims are brought into the court and sketch artists give visual representations of uh, those things for the audience at home, as well as the prose portraits by the journalists. The audience, as well as the fellow journalists, become part of the story. It's something that something that probably would be familiar to us, that, that the um, journalists pick out particularly good-looking or odd-looking people uh, and describe them and overhear conversations and relay those to the people at home who are, you know, eagerly awaiting for details that come via uh, updates throughout the day. There are uh, no women on the jury. Women weren't allowed to uh, serve on Massachusetts jury uh, juries until 1950. But there is a dedicated uh, section of the audience that's female. And many of the journalists refer to them as a kind of self-constituted second jury. And they're a lot more hostile than the actual jury. What was that supposed jury saying as opposed to, we're going to get back to in a moment, what the actual jury said? They seemed to think she was guilty, you know, and hmm. they viewed her they viewed her as a you know, woman who, who had transgressed in this fundamental way and were suspicious of the things that I think otherwise played quite well, which was the um, care that she devoted to her appearance before trial. It was noticed that she, um, if her hair had been mussed, you know, if the perfect curl had was missing, that she would fix it during the um, recesses of the trial. On June 20th, Lizzie Borden ends up being acquitted by that all-male jury. So how does that happen? How do they end up reaching that verdict? It's an unusually long trial for its era. You know, it's almost three weeks. Despite that, despite the, you know, the amount of evidence that's, that's presented by the prosecution, the jury's pretty much decided. They, they reach their verdict within 20 minutes. They just take a vote almost immediately upon entering the jury room. But they decide that that, that would be unseemly. So they, they delay delivering the jury, the, the verdict for a while, so that it looks like that they've been, been sort of reasonably deliberative. <laughs> wow. I mean, I should say that two of the most compelling pieces of evidence never reached the jury. The first is the uh, alleged attempt by Lizzie Borden uh, of buying prussic acid. Mm. Um, and the second is the contradictory account of her own movements that come from her inquest testimony. There's a kind of technical legal reason why that's not admitted, um, but that has a lot to do with expectations about gender as well, particularly middle-class womanhood, that she's, uh, that essentially she's being entrapped by the police uh, and bullied. And it's also noted that her doctor has given her a prescription for something containing morphine. Uh, and so that, you know, it's just no wonder she was all confused. Wow. The ways in which sort of assumptions about protecting her and suspecting her and assuming things about her and then making excuses for her. It's, it's an amazing bundle of things. Yeah. And I was struck by that, you know, I'm, I'm a lawyer. So I was looking at, at the lawyer's strategy, you know, and trying to unpick whether are they making the, you know, whether they're trying to make these arguments because they know they'll be persuasive to the jury or is this what they believe themselves? And it seems like a little bit of a, a mix because th they act very much like, uh, paternal figures, or at least the, her defense lawyers mm. do. You know, she's 32 years old, and she's spoken about 
as if she is a girl. I mean, that's she's repeatedly called a young girl. Uh, but the prosecution doesn't challenge that, nor does it challenge other things that, that could have been quite useful. I mean, one of the most important pieces of uh, evidence or non-evidence, if you will, that's in Lizzie Borden's favor is the absence of blood. Uh, and no blood was found on Lizzie Borden or on any of her clothes. But there are two, um, you know, there are two things that are, that, you know, that could explain that. One is that, one is that there's a dress that she burned on the Sunday after the murders on the theory that it had been stained with paint. Um, and the second is that there was a, um, a pail of bloody cloths in the basement uh, that her doctor assured the police were menstrual cloths. Uh, and they may well have been, but uh, it's something that the prosecution just prefers not to mention either. Once again, gender playing a really interesting role here. Right. The defense gets to have it both ways because on the one hand, it's you know it's essentially kept out of the trial. So they can harp on the fact that, that there's no blood found on Lizzie Borton. But they also use the fact of what they refer to as her monthly illness to explain any oddities in her behavior or inconsistencies in her statements. Wow. So she's found, she's acquitted, she's found not guilty. How did the public respond to that? In the immediate aftermath of the trial, there's, there's you know, celebration at the site. This seems to be a verdict that's, that's you know, greeted with great enthusiasm by most people in the public. Locally, it's a lot more divisive. The same papers that criticized the police for, for dragging their feet on, uh, about arresting Lizzie Borden viewed this as just you know, yet another case of some, a member of the elite, a member of the elite getting away with murders. It was an extremely stratified mill town. Uh, enthusiasm uh, about the verdict cools pretty quickly. Um, so that Lizzie Borden, when she returns to her old life uh, and attends the church that had provided the bedrock of her support during the trial, um, finds herself surrounded by empty pews. And that pretty much sets the tone for the way the town treated her, or at least the, the part of the town that she aspired to join. So then what happens to her in the time after the trial? Well, one of the supposed motives for the murder was Lizzie Borden's dissatisfaction with the cramped family house. And after she's acquitted, she and her sister move from the cramped family house in the business district to what's effectively a McMansion uh, in the Hill District, which is the elite residential area in Fall River. Uh, and then she uh, lives it up. She starts to go to the theater in Boston and acts, you know, in a way that's not entirely consistent with her earlier behavior. She was really expected to go back and live down her notoriety. Mm -hmm. And instead, you know, she lived it up. Uh, and so she lives there with her sister for about 12 years. Uh, there's an argument and the sister moves out uh, and never speaks to her again. And so she lives in Fall River to the end of her days, but, you know, essentially alone. Okay, I'm going to ask you one last question, and I'm very curious about your answer. Who do you think killed Andrew and Abby Borden? Ah. <laughs> the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, this is a non-spoiler alert, so I, I don't solve the case, you know, in the book. I thought it was important not to, you know, that I think you lose credibility mm -hmm. when you... Um, and that what was important was to, you know, set out uh, the story as, as completely as possible based on the primary sources and, you know, let the evidence that points in a bunch of different directions sort of speak for itself. That said, I, you know, I think I'm sort of in the same position uh, as I was at the beginning, which is that, you know, it is difficult as a practical matter to understand how she could have killed both people and presented herself in between in between the murders and then again, very quickly after the second murder, you know, in perfect attire without any blood. Um, at the same time, it's, it seems almost impossible that, you know, anyone else could have done it and then eluded the two women who were in the house at the time. Hmm. So you end up right there, um, <laughs> able to see both sides and, and sort of 
standing on that border. Yeah, I'm comfortable with the ambiguity mm-hmm. because I, I think there's something about this case that that you know has a universality to it. I was interested in the specifics of it. You know, I very much wanted to talk about uh, Lizzie Borden's trial in its exact uh, social and cultural context. But at the same time, there's there's something about this particular mystery that you know I think tugs at us, mm. uh, and so you know, not having a firm decision on it, uh, not having made a firm decision, I think, is useful and probably honest. Kara Robertson is the author of The Trial of Lizzie Borden. The whodunit nature of Lizzie Borden's trial has captivated audiences for generations. By one count, there are some 580 books about Lizzie Borden, 120 videos, and 90 theatrical pieces, including ballets, plays, and even an opera. But for one famous writer, the appeal of this next story wasn't whodunit, but why done it. It all started in mid-November 1959. Truman Capote, of Breakfast at Tiffany's fame, was in his New York City apartment when an article in the newspaper caught his eye. The story described how the family of a wealthy wheat farmer was found shot to death in Holcomb, Kansas. They had been killed by shotgun blast at close range after being bound and gagged, the article read. There were no signs of struggle and nothing had been stolen that the telephone lines had been cut. You know, when Capote found this, he wanted to find a sort of like case or a situation or story that he would be able to like explore in this long form way. Sarah Sliger is an expert on true crime and pop culture. And so I think he was immediately drawn to this with this specific sort of end goal of writing um, a really long form story about it and eventually the book In Cold Blood. Capote was so drawn to the story that soon after hearing about the murders of Herbert Clutter, his wife Bonnie, and his kids Nancy and Kenyon, he packed his bags and flew to Kansas. Capote took his childhood friend Harper Lee with him, the same Harper Lee who wrote the classic book To Kill a Mockingbird. Capote was from the South and had this interest in writing about areas of the United States that had a really strong sort of like regional inflection as he saw. But at the same time, he had lived in Manhattan for a really long time at this point. It was very much a sort of Manhattan socialite. And that's actually why Harper Lee joined him because she had been, he thought of her, they had been childhood friends and he thought of her as much more, um, kind of grounded in the South. And so like maybe more able to access this like really regional area of the Midwest. And so sort of saw her as um, someone who could help smooth over some of the interactions that he had with local people. So that's what they did, right? They, they rushed to Holcomb. Um, and how, how soon after the arrest did they arrive? They actually arrived well before the arrest. So they um, huh. there was a month or two um, before the two men who committed the murders were apprehended. There was actually at the beginning when they first arrived, there was a lot of suspicion that it had been somebody in the town who had done it. There weren't a lot of sort of outsiders in the town and it was sort of assumed that people who had come from outside of the town would have been noticed or that there must have been some kind of personal motivation. Truman Capote's book, In Cold Blood, was the culmination of his time in Kansas. And if you ask Capote, it was the first true crime book ever published. Sarah Sliger says many others beg to differ. There's a lot of debate about whether or not this is the first true crime novel. I think that what you could certainly say is that it is this book. I cannot overstate how successful it was. You know, even reviewers at the time when it came out in 1966, reviewers at the time were like, this is the most talked about book of the year. It was getting coverage everywhere. Everybody was reading it. Although there, I think, were certainly many um, different types of long form journalism that 
you know, explored some of the psychological ramifications of crimes. There were also a lot of um, novelizations or film versions of crimes that had actually happened. Mm -hmm. The extent to which this like just was a cultural landmark cannot be overstated. And so that's really, I think, why it's become remembered as the first true crime book and why it's also remembered as a foundational moment in um, in long-form journalism and narrative nonfiction as well. So even though Capote's narrative style kind of erased himself, how much of its visibility and importance came from him being sort of a participant observer in the trial? Capote did erase himself totally from the narrative. You know, he doesn't ever use the word I. There's one moment in the entire book when he refers to a journalist and he means himself. However, I think a big part of what made the book so popular was this sense that people are getting like a behind the scenes version of events. So it's controversial in many ways, but how would you describe the book for people who haven't read it? Although the phrase not nonfiction novel is very controversial, I do think that's a good way of like a point of entry into understanding what a book like In Cold Blood is because it's this long form journalistic account of these murders and of the motivations of the men who um, who committed them. And so the first the very first chapter of the book, the first part looks at the lives of this family, everything they did in the last day of their lives. Then it moves into a section that's about the investigation, tracking down these men. We find out very early on that these two men, Dick Hickok and Perry Smith, committed the crime. And so we're Hmm. sort of, it goes like back and forth between their perspective as they're on the run and the police perspective as they're like tracing them, tracking them down. It, then it goes on to show their tri- after they're apprehended, their trial um, it explores the sort of criminal justice system, and then their incarceration and execution. And so it's really a holistic look at this crime and its aftermath. So that really is remarkable that it's it's not the usual who done it question, right? But rather we know who done it, and then we try to figure out why. Is, exactly. is that the yes. question yeah. that drives the book? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We call it a why done it. Um, so you could think of, uh, often you could think of books as, uh, or crime books as either a whodunit, a howdunit, or a why done it. And this is sort of a combination of a how done it and a why done it. So you're really, the big motivation for the book is trying to understand why they committed this crime and how, like what the sort of background was that shaped these two individuals, Perry and Dick, and brought them to a place where they would, they would do something so horrific. So how does Capote describe these men? And does he seem somewhat drawn to them? Yeah, there's, I think, a real fascination on Capote's part as he goes deeper and deeper into the story. I mean, he worked on this book for six years, I guess maybe almost seven years seven years, technically. The first, you know, two years are when most of the action is happening. But then there's like five years when the men are in, in prison awaiting execution, and he's still interviewing them going to them. He's like, really their main visitor, um, especially Perry Smith, who really doesn't have any family, um, and who Capote becomes quite attached to um, in that they they really form a sort of um, back and forth. And also, you know, it's like a very intimate thing to try to understand why someone did something like this to go so far into their history. He tracks down, you know, family members or old colleagues or um, acquaintances. There is a real fascination um, for it. And he did go to witness their execution, which he did not want to do and almost backed out of. But, you know, he Mm. said it was the worst day of his life. And he did it because he felt, you know, he had to, he felt it was the thing he had to do for the story. I think he also felt a level of, um, of debt to these men whose story he had sort of taken and turned into the, and, you know, knew I think was going to be such a phenomenon. So my understanding is that he didn't actually tape record any of the conversations, but just did them by memory. That sounds a little suspect. Did people criticize him at the time for that? <laughs> yes. Yeah. He got a lot of criticism at the time and today. Um, Capote had, well, what, how he put it was that he had decided some years earlier to train himself to recall conversations perfectly. And so he claimed he had a 95% recall rate 
It is not clear how he measured this. Clearly, some stuff is also embroidered upon. And you can also tell that because um, there is this really great study that um, that a scholar did where he looked comparatively at the version that was published in The New Yorker and then the version that was um, published as the book. And he found almost 5,000 changes between these. And some of those are like changes to actual documents, changes to quotes, like changes wow. to things that, you know, as a journalist, you would say, oh, this is a thing that cannot be changed. Capote definitely changed them. We have the we have the receipts. And that um, that scholar is Jack DeBellis. Also, I want to give credit to because that's an in- incredibly thorough. Well, it's a good thing this is a novel, right? And not the uh, official court record. This is a part in the late 50s, and early 60s that you've written about a due process revolution when it came to the legal system. But what do you mean by that? And how does that interact with the what you just told us about in cold blood? The Due Process Revolution was a series of decisions um, that was made in the mid-20th century by the Supreme Court that federally standardized criminal rights across the country. So uh, actually, a lot of things that we think of as criminal rights that everyone can kind of take for granted, such as the right to an attorney, um, the protections against illegal search and seizure, a whole lot of, um, of things were not federally standardized even before 1965, in some cases, some states had, you know, had these rights or gave these rights to their citizens. Some didn't, um, but this was actually like a really, really massive overhaul in um, in the criminal justice system. But I definitely do think that in cold blood is in conversation with a lot of these changes that were happening at the time, and you can even see in the sections that are depicting the courtroom sequences, the trial, you can see references to criminal procedures that are being developed. So one particular area that Capote was really critiquing is um, the idea of the insanity defense and the way Mm -hmm. the insanity defense as a concept has been around for a long time, but the particular way that it's implemented and um, the shape it took changed a lot in the mid 20th century. And Capote is really um, talks a lot about the different kind of dimensions of this and how they uh, feed into, into criminal justice reform. So there's absolutely, I think, a lot of the conversation about crime, about um, criminal behavior that is motivating Capote's kind of interest in criminal psychology is also something that's happening in the criminal justice system. So in the book, uh, The Insanity Plea, is of crucial importance. Can you tell us how that worked? The idea of like an insanity defense had been around for a really long time. Um, but even though there are all these huge changes happening in um, the sort of psychology and sociology spheres, there was like a lot of rethinking of how um, how criminal behavior and how psychology actually work. The standard that was being used in Kansas at this time um, was from the 1840s. It's called the Monoton Test. And it was just a question of like, did the defendant know what they were doing was wrong at the time that they committed it? It's like really like yes, no answer. And so one thing that's really interesting about, about In Cold Blood, and I think one of its really sort of valuable interventions is that Capote says... That's really like that's really insufficient to understanding who these people were and the possible reasons why they may have um, committed the crime. There were actually extremely long, detailed sort of um, psychiatric profiles that were produced, but they weren't allowed to be in- admitted into evidence because it's you know because it's a book, it's a narrative account, it's not a trial. Capote is able to kind of introduce these explanations without having to come down hard on the idea of like, well, should these men have been exonerated or not exonerated? But one thing I think that's really valuable about the book and looking at it in conjunction with the legal system is that it creates a lot more space for these really complex ideas of of psychology and of human behavior. So it sounds like In Cold Blood brought together a lot of things that were happening at the time. Uh, You'd mentioned that Capote himself said that the the day of the execution of the murderers was the worst day of his life. What what was the impact of this book on him other than making him rich and famous? It did 
destroy him in a lot of ways. Mm. He died a few decades later, but a lot of people who who knew him said that he was just, yeah, he, he was never the same after working on this. He struggled a lot with addiction. He had a lot of trouble writing. It was it was really emotionally taxing for him. And I do think it's a great work of art, but you know, it's explored a little bit in there's that great film Capote with yeah. like Catherine Keener and Philip Seymour Hoffman. They sort of explore some of the psychological toll, I think in a in a quite um in a quite responsible way. So you've just written your own crime book, but it's a novel, not nonfiction. What, what did you learn from Capote? And what was it like shifting from the study of true crime to the writing of crime fiction? How do you navigate that? I do think from Capote as a writer, his attention to detail and the kind of vividness of it, the way he can kind of immerse you in an atmosphere, I find really successful and is like certainly something that I that I emulate. My book, even though it is not true crime, it does think a lot about these ethical questions of representing crime and criminal behavior, the ways in which the sort of popular stories that get told are different from what we what might really happen in someone's life. Sarah Sliger is the author of Take Me Apart. She's also a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Southern California. Crime has been a popular podcast genre since the mid-2010s. That was when Serial, a show about the 1999 murder of Heyman Lee, became the most listened to podcast in America after its October 2014 debut. In fact, 2014 was a big year for true crime podcast. Criminal, a show produced at WUNC, released its first episode earlier that year. He didn't know it at the time, but he may have just had a brush with death. I'm Phoebe Judge, and this is Criminal. Lauren Spohr, my co-creator, and I, we both been working for a national public radio show called The Story with Dick Gordon, and I was the guest host, and, and she was uh, producing a lot of the segments and directing the show. And, and we were sitting around one night and thought to ourselves, you know, people who listen to public radio also watch Law & Order. They may not want to admit it, but right. they do. <laughs> and um, what if we... What if we start a crime show? Lauren said it, and and I thought, well, that was the smartest thing I'd ever heard because I, I realized we would never run out of stories. Criminal is not only an original in the genre, but a standout. Its appeal is in the details, but not in a salacious or violent way. Criminal carefully recounts each crime story with a deep curiosity and empathy for the people involved. We very early on decided that we would try to make a show that was... An, an answer to some of the crime reporting that we were seeing out there, some of the sensationalistic and uh, violent, um, over-dramatized lack of empathy or concern for the victims that were being spoken about, all of that, we wanted to try to do it in a different way and to take a very broad look at what that word crime means. What pre preconceived ideas do you think people have about crime or criminals? What do they bring to the show? Well, I, I think that that people can oftentimes believe that they could never be a criminal. You know, well, uh, that's yeah. not me. Mm -hmm. You know, well, I know people I, that would never be me. I'm so interested in the stories where the same person has thought that exact same thing and then something happens and they've become that other, that criminal. Um, those are so intriguing to me. I think that, that we like to believe that all those who do bad things, wrong things, are on one side of the line and, and we firmly are on the other as good people and we don't come close to that line. I would say, after doing this show for 140 episodes or more, that I think we're all much closer to that line than, than we may assume that we are. And it just takes a, a circumstance, a, a series of events that can push us over. Now, I, I'm not talking about terrible, violent, sadistic, serial right. crimes. I'm talking about those crimes that maybe we get pulled into um, that we never thought that we would, and, and maybe we would never do again. I, I'm thinking about an episode we did with a woman who... Uh, 
helped a man escape from prison. I promise you that woman had never considered herself to be a criminal and probably still today is wondering how anyone could call her a criminal because she can't understand it herself. But those are the stories that I think are, are really interesting to explore. Was that the episode Off-Leash? Off-Leash. Yeah, because I was just listening to that, and she says, you know, I always counted to three at stop signs, and, you know, it never occurred to me to violate any kind of law. So I thought that was a particularly powerful demonstration of your theme there, really. Would it be giving way too much to ask kind of what happens to her? She she helps a man escape in a dog crate out of prison. Uh, I uh. think she believes that he's in, in love with her, and... Um, Maybe he is. I mean, who am I to say? And they end up getting caught, and uh, she now is remarried and out of prison. She spent some time in prison and um, living her life. And, and when she tells the story, the way she talks about it, it's almost as if she's talking about another person because she's still so amazed that she got wrapped up in this whole thing. Right, right. So you say you've, you've done well over 100 episodes. Uh, how do you pick stories for criminal? Well, there really is no criteria except, again, our kind of own curiosity. But I, I will say that we, we try to choose stories where we know that the, we will have some person speaking about this topic who's had some direct experience. We, we wanted to create a show that had uh, a lot of first-person narrative in it. And so mm -hmm. that sometimes will help drive our stories. We also, um, we also want to pick stories that haven't been covered so well in the, in the media in the past. And if we do choose a story that has been covered well, um, I think that we oftentimes try to find a new angle on that. But really, the only criteria is our own curiosity. And, and by this point, you know, as many episodes as we're, we, we are in, uh, I think one of us will bring a, a story idea to, to the other and we'll kind of immediately know, oh, that sounds like a, a criminal story. Um, criminal being, you know, the show. Uh, that right. sounds like something that that fits the bill for, for the type of stories that we want to tell. Are there particular episodes or interviews that stand out uh, over these years? A lot, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot of episodes that um, stand out and interviews that I've done. I mean, one of, uh, one of my favorite episodes is an episode called 695 BGK about an unarmed black man who was shot by a white police officer uh, because of a mistake of a letter on a license plate. Um, mm. That was, uh, that was, I think, an, an important episode to tell. And it was also going on uh, three or four years ago when we were seeing a rise in the number of black men that were being shot by white police officers. And we were trying to figure out how we could comment, not comment on that, but but participate in, in that conversation um, by not, but by doing something that maybe hadn't been done before. Um, what we chose to do was to pick a story Many of the men who had been shot by these uh, white police officers had died, and so we couldn't hear from them. Um, right. We chose a story where we could, uh, where a man survived, and so we could hear from him and hear his perspective on exactly what happened. Well, somehow you managed to have other podcasts, even while you do this remarkable one. Uh, you have Phoebe Reads a Mystery, which sounds as if you might be reading mystery uh, novels or books. Uh, t tell me about that. How does that work? Well, that was just a funny idea. Um, when this whole uh, virus started and staying at home and mm -hmm. quarantine, uh, we had heard before that maybe sometimes people write in and say, Phoebe, would you read something? Probably just to put them to sleep, I'm sure. But uh, we <laughs> thought that it would be... Um, a, a thing we could do that I could read a chapter a day from a classic mystery novel and maybe it would just be a distraction for people. And so we started with The Mysterious Affair at Styles, uh, the Agatha Christie book. And uh -huh. we really had just hoped to do that. But for some reason, uh, I don't know, people seem to like the show. And so uh, we kept it going. And now we're on our third book. We're reading The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins. And uh, we'll probably go back to an Agatha Christie next. But I think it's just a way for people to uh, escape maybe what's going on all around us right now and uh, very simply, just and quietly, uh, go to another time. Um, so that's it's surprising to me that it's continued, but uh, I'm very happy to be doing it. It's nice to have the script written beforehand. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> uh, and you have another podcast called This is Love, uh, Love and Crime. 
Uh, do you see a connection between these two topics? Well, I, I you know, I, certainly those are one of the two most covered topics in the world. Um, but <laughs> I think what we wanted to do in the same way that we had done this with the word crime is push the boundaries of this word love. And uh-huh. so the two shows while seemingly very different, one about love and one about crime, are actually very similar. Um, There was another show about the human experience and Mm -hmm. finding stories that challenge that notion of the word love and what it means. We have very few episodes in this show that are actually about romantic love. Um, We're in the middle of our fourth season. It's a whole season about animals. And uh, the season before was a whole season about Italy. So I, I think that it's fun for us to be able to every every episode think, okay, how can we surprise our listeners? What can we do? How can we get them scratching their heads saying, how are they calling this a love story? And I hope by the end, uh, maybe people see why. But I think that taking on these stories has made the crime show better. It's just another attempt to understand um, why people do the things they do, what drives people, um, the idea of it's all going to be okay, I think is an overwhelming message in, in the love show of just even, even, in, even when you don't think it is, it, it will be okay. One way or another, it will be okay. Phoebe Judge is the host of Criminal a Radiotopia podcast produced at WUNC and distributed by PRX. You can find episodes of Criminal at thisiscriminal.com or wherever you get your podcast. We're going to finish the show by returning to my conversation with Rachel Monroe. She says it might seem like true crime is particularly popular right now, but we've been here before. Yeah, well, it's funny when people always talk about the the true crime boom that we're happening that's happening right now and there is a part of me that wants to say, well, aren't we constantly in a true crime boom? I mean, I I do kind of feel like as as long as we've had mass media these stories of crimes of investigation, of bad deeds, um, have always been really popular among humans. So our, our fascination with them is, is a pretty longstanding thing. But what does seem to change is what kinds of stories are popular, how those stories are told, the medium. I tend to think that when a, when a new form comes out, the crime stories adapt themselves to the new form. I mean, they're just a great... Mm. So, so right now you'll see in these podcasts um, or on these TV shows, they're recapitulating stories that have been told many times before. I mean, how many, how much content can be produced about Ted Bundy, right? But it's still, you know, it's a story that maybe you think like this has been told over and over and over again. But when you have a new format, like, like the podcast or these, these limited series, the change in medium offers a kind of new way to package the story or to frame it, and it reaches a new audience. I think there are a lot of reasons that um, true crime has has preoccupied people recently, but I, I think that the, these new forms is definitely one reason. Now, you just mentioned that a lot of these stories, like Ted Bundy, they get told again and again and again. What, generally speaking, would you say some of these true crime narratives obscure or omit about the realities of crime. There must be the certain kinds of things that they focus on and other kinds of things that they just leave out. Definitely. Yeah, there's a, I mean, the, the vast majority of violent crime in the United States doesn't look anything like the stories that we get in these true crime programs. In, in that way, I think it is, it can be a stretch to, to refer to it as true crime. I mean, first of all, something that I always tell people that, that shocks them is that if you look at the crime statistics in the United States, the murder statistics, the percentage of murders where a woman is murdered by a man is only like a quarter of the murders in the United States. But those crimes make up such an overwhelming proportion of the crimes that we see on TV that are covered in, mm. this, in the you know, paperback books and in the podcasts. And overwhelmingly um, and disproportionately, the crimes, the victims that we see um, depicted in these stories tend to be attractive, young, 
middle-class white women. Um, when we know mm. that that's typically not who is most at risk of being a victim of violent crime in our culture. So that's definitely one thing, like whose stories count, who's, what kind of victims are we granting attention and the spot, granting the spotlight to. Something that you don't hear a lot about in these true crime programs is that violent crime is actually way, way, way down um, mm. in the U.S. I peaked in the early 90s, and since then it's, it's about half what it was then. But there are some very interesting studies done by Pew that ask people, do you feel like crime is going up or going down? And almost every single year, while violent crime is going down, people report the feeling that it's going up. Mm. And I think that that can partly be attributed to the fact that we there's just so much attention to these violent stories in our media, so it can really skew our perception of how dangerous the world is and, and who is at risk. It does affect you. Let me ask one last question. You found that women are the biggest consumers of true crime. So why do you think that is? Why, why are women in particular drawn to those kinds of stories? Well, I think there are a number of reasons, and that's that was one of the reasons I wanted to write a whole book about it, because I think sometimes there can be reductive answers to that question, right? That women, um, and the one you hear a lot is women want to avoid being a victim, and so they they read these stories to to kind of get tips for how to avoid a serial killer. And and to me, that seems really reductive. I think the the motivations are really complex and layered. And but I think the thing that I hear a lot, and that seems to be really primary is that these stories can often be a way to think about and metabolize trauma. And so people who have been victims of violent crime or have somebody close to them who've been victims of violent crime um, might turn to these stories to kind of work through feelings. But even if you haven't been the victim of a violent crime, if you're just sort of living life in a in a society where misogyny is a problem, um, where you deal with sexism, um, maybe you haven't been assaulted, but you've, you've feared being assaulted. Um, these things are just the, the threat of violence is something that's present in your mind in mm. a daily life. Then these stories are a way to acknowledge that fear and to deal with it in a way. Um, and, and sometimes it can deal with the fear by, by kind of stoking and alarming it. And, and sometimes it deals with it in a more nuanced way. But I do think that's something that a lot of women have told me what, what draws them into these stories. Huh. So, so in a way, though, the, the books and, and TV shows these, that are true crime, they're framing it and kind of almost suggesting that it's controllable because there's a beginning and a middle and I guess some of the time an end. So it's interesting. It sounds like what you're suggesting is um, that process of seeing these stories put in that form might be part of what draws women in. Exactly. I think that you hear a lot of people paradoxically refer to true crime as, as soothing or relaxing, which on its mm. surface sounds kind of hard to understand. But then the more that you watch it, you realize, yes, these stories are often told in a formulaic way. The threat is embodied in one bad guy, usually. Often he meets justice, right? The, the, these books and podcasts and stories often end with a trial with the uh, the doors to the jail slam- slamming closed. And so there is this feeling, at least within the the confines of the story, that, that justice has been served. It, it makes me think of um, the endless, countless iterations of Law and Order, mm-hmm. the TV show, um, which are so formulaic, right? There's a crime at the beginning, and then there's the two members of the police department hunting it down and then there's the trial at the end and then something happens and it's resolved and there's a happy quirky little comment or a dark comment at the end and it's over and i can't say i'm hugely invested in true crime but there was a period when i watched a heck of a lot of law and order and i think that precisely what we're talking about here is what drew me in is that they were predictable and despite the fact that they were dark the predictability of it was comforting yeah, definitely. And and I found in my life, I've definitely had periods of my life when I've turned to a lot of Law & Order, particularly Law & Order <laughs> SVU. And it's it's been at times of my life when I'm when there's a certain amount of like chaos or instability in my own life. And I think there is something about mm. these shows where they acknowledge that, you know, they they mm-hmm. don't pretend that the world is a is a rosy and happy place, but at the same time you have these these dogged investigators who won't stop until they get justice. And so 
it is a it, it kind of stokes your fear and anxiety and then assuages it and that is a really powerful formula Rachel Monroe is the author of Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime, and Obsession. That's going to do it for us today but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. You'll find us at backstoryradio.org or send an email to backstory at virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, the Johns Hopkins University, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities. <laughs>